0: thank you all for checking out this week's episode once again i'm john if you like what you heard and saw today subscribe to our youtube channel find us on instagram facebook and twitter and check out our brand new merch store with hats coffee mugs, t-shirts other cool stuff coming down the pipeline Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spirit Talk. And today, we get to welcome the incredible Jackson Rudolph to the show. Jackson is a 60-time multi-world champion martial artist with the bow staff. He is a 4'3 black belt in Taekwondo. He's a black belt Hall of Famer. He's also a medical student and becoming a physician through the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, uh, as well as a second lieutenant in the Army. Uh, he's the creator of the flow system with the bow staff and a husband and a very, very busy individual.
1: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, excited to get into, uh, all the crazy things that I do at well.
0: <laughs> so uh, I think we should start there. It's for someone that is world renowned, incredible in what you do with the martial arts. How do you find the balance between that going to medical school, the military commitment with the medical school, being a husband, uh, training and teaching and doing what you do. Is there ever a time in your life where you're kind of like, maybe I'm doing too much or how do you, how do you, what advice do you have for people that want you want to give advice to people to excel in these situations?
1: This is by far my favorite question because it like is my entire mission statement as a human being at this stage in my life is, You know, we hear so often in in motivational podcasts and speeches and things of that nature. Like, you know, you you pick that passion, you stick to it, you dedicate all of your time to it. Uh, And I feel that because that was a young Jackson Rudolph. Six, seven, eight-year-old me, that is how it was with martial arts. Because, you know, when you're in second and third grade, you don't need to dedicate all your time to school because you're in second and third grade. And so literally very early in my life, That was my mindset of this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on just one thing. And that's what I'm going to be great at uh, because I loved it. It wasn't in the beginning. It wasn't this pursuit of greatness. It was, I love martial arts. And so this is what I'm going to focus all of my attention on. But then as I got older and I had other interests getting to medical, uh, uh, middle school, that's where I kind of first thought that I might want to be a doctor and, and you know, go to medical school. Um, and so I started to, to begin juggling passions through middle and into high school. And then really in college is, is where I hit the ground running with it because it was like as soon as I stepped foot at Stanford, that was like everything really matters now because this is what determines my future as a medical student where I'm going to wind up going to medical school if I'm going to be able to get into medical school in the first place, because that is not an easy process no matter what undergrad college you're coming from. Um, So really, as I got into college is where I kind of formulated my new philosophy about this, which is don't let anybody tell you that you only have to chase one passion. Because for the last probably eight or so years of my life, I have chased two and so far so good, right? Uh, You know, I was the professional martial arts competitor all throughout my four years at Stanford. I, you know, continued traveling and competing and then COVID hit. And that was kind of when I was going into the medical school application cycle. And that's when I kind of pivoted and shifted from being a full-time martial arts competitor to working with Black Belt Magazine, writing articles for them, helping them with uh, several other efforts within the sport karate space. Uh, and then eventually making the switch to commentating, uh, like I commentated for ESPN2 with the U.S. Open this year, which is for karate's largest tournament. And that is all happening while I'm now in medical school. And so for me, it's, I always go back to something my dad would always say, which was, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And that is how I've executed this. It's, I, I love doing martial arts. I love everything I do in that space. I love going to medical school. I love seeing patients. I love the pursuit of that goal of becoming a physician. And because I legitimately and genuinely enjoy those two things, people say, how do you balance it? But for me, I wake up and I do what I love every day. So it doesn't feel like a balancing act. And I think that that is the number one message that I want to spread. And I love that we're opening the show with that because so often we hear like, pick the one thing and go for it. But it's like, if you're ever feeling that internal struggle and you don't know which direction to go, try both. And there will be times that you physically can't do both for whatever reason, but at least give both a try. Because if you truly love both things, it just might work out.
0: When it comes to those times where it might be difficult, obviously you have a support system, whether it's a wife or family or friends that support you. But how important is that having that right system in place to make sure people holding you accountable to what you're trying to do. And if you do need a break or you need to step away and, Hey, take a time out. They're going to be the ones that step into that. Because for me, it maybe it's just a a bad thing where we never want to ask for help. And there's always that stigma of, uh, I can get through this. I don't need a mental health day. What are you talking about? That's so stupid. But sometimes as I get older, it's like, you, you meet people who have gone through some actual crazy stuff, uh, that those mental health days and those kind of days, there, you have to take them for yourself, but don't be afraid to ask for help and surround yourself with people that will kind of help nourish you and kind of protect you from those type of bad days. So can, you can kind of talk upon the importance of having that actual structure around you as well.
1: Right. I had a similar conversation like this with my wife not long ago, and I think that it's exactly that. You just have to be willing to be open because everybody goes through stuff. Obviously there's a spectrum of of different uh, severities that people go through our normal struggles of life, but everybody deals with something. And I think that first step is just having the openness to talk about it and address it and admit that there's something going on or something bothering you. Um, And really that's the first step, right? And then whatever that support system is, whether it's in my case, I've got my wife, uh, my parents have always been extremely supportive. So I call and talk to them whenever I need to. I've got a great group of friends. So I've been very blessed that I have a lot of social support systems, Uh, but it doesn't have to be through that. I know there's, I've, I've even got friends who like, really don't want to talk to anybody about anything like that and sometimes their best way to cope with it is go and play call of duty for two hours you know what i mean like so whatever it is whether it's a social network that helps you and supports you or whether it's just like whatever that extra hobby is that helps you just get away from it all uh which i'll admit i've played some video games from time to time i'm a big nba 2k guy not saying i'm good at it but i play it when i get to all right it. uh but anyway just like having that having those escapes and then also having that support system and not being afraid to use it. I feel like so often people are like, I don't want to bother them with my problems. You know, it's, there's, there's bigger issues than this. Uh, but like most of the time, whenever I've had buddies come to me about it, it's, you know, Hey, let's talk about it in 15 minutes. And that changes everything.
0: Before we get into like the, the actual specifics of sports karate, namely the bow staff, one of the interesting things I love about the martial arts and I've never had a black belt. I've watched all the movies. I, I respect the hell of all the men and women who do this. And a lot of the guests on my show, from Racia Casillas, uh, Lauren Avedon, Keith Cook, Richard Norton, uh, Herender Singh, all these world champion people, what they do, it's always interesting when they talk about, it's what they get out of martial arts besides the physical aspect of it. The idea of hard work, respect, loyalty, determination. And it's interesting when you watch someone like you perform... You can tell that you're getting that those those key those points out of the out of what you're doing. And it's showing to other people and kids, and especially the sport that you're trying to recruit people in to partake in the bow staff and sports karate and keep this legacy going. But those type of things, whether it's hard work or respect, it's a lot of time I feel other hobbies people do other jobs or other things. You're not really getting that type of stuff out, but what the martial arts teaches you, It's much bigger than getting a black belt to become a world champion. It's the little things in life that help define you as you move forward when you're well past the age of even doing martial arts, maybe.
1: I couldn't agree with that more. And I think that what makes martial arts so special is no matter which art form you do, like I came up in taekwondo, but if you do karate, kung fu, doesn't matter. It's built into the curriculum of 95% of the martial arts schools out there. Like in my taekwondo school, every belt represented... A different principle that that we were taught like the very first one at white belt was respect and we were taught from day one like the white belt represents respect and then down the line green belt integrity and perseverance at red belt and so on and so forth but just that direct connection sure you can gain life skills like that from other sports but there's no other sport that's going to be that direct about it and say, if you want to advance to the next rank, not only do you have to learn these parts of the curriculum, but I want to show if you're a white belt, can you demonstrate respect? Can you say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and not just do it because we all do it in class, but do it as a natural part of your vocabulary as part of your dialogue, right? And that's the first little thing that I noticed from even in elementary school. Like when I was in fourth and fifth grade, I remember adults being like, oh, wow, like you're so respectful or whatever, when I would just say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am because other kids weren't taught to do that. Kids that were playing baseball, basketball, football, that wasn't part of how they were brought up. And it was literally ingrained in the martial arts curriculum. Um, And then on top of that, I mean, just within sport karate specifically, but you can do this in any form of the martial arts, the goal setting that comes within it. And then from that, the work ethic, right? Like everything that I learned about hard work and about training to get results that transferred over into my academics, That came initially from martial arts. Martial arts is what taught me like, okay, these are the things that I need to do to move up to Yellow Belt. These are the things that I need to do to get first place at my next regional tournament. These are the things that I need to do to be able to win on the NASCA circuit, which is our biggest league, the North American Sport Karate Association. And so at every level of training in the martial arts to competing, to being a professional competitor, that was instilling in me goal setting principles and a work ethic that I now carry over into all aspects of my life. And the way that that was just so naturally built into martial arts, it's truly unlike any other activity.
0: Can I have a two part question here for you? Obviously, when it came to you start doing Taekwondo, how did you transition into bow staff? And can someone go into sports karate without a basis of say another martial arts, whether it's Taekwondo, Judo, even karate itself, hapkido, like do you need a specific background before you pick up a bow staff?
1: It's an excellent question because the people who know martial arts, when I say, you know, everybody knows me as the green bow guy, right? Uh, But they find out that I have a taekwondo background and they're like, well, this doesn't make sense. Like Taekwondo doesn't traditionally teach a whole lot of weapons. Like you know, you kick people. You don't pick up a bow, right? Um, and even like the word "bow" is Japanese. Taekwondo is Korean, right? So like, where does this? Uh, so anyway, uh, it started for me because my initial school owner. He purchased the XMA curriculum, which came out in the early 2000s. Mike Chat was the founder of it. And Mike Chat was an all time great competitor in his day. I think he's one of like two people ever to get perfect tens in the US Open, like all the way across the board. So Mike Chat was a big deal as a competitor. And he was also the first guy to do a backflip in a form. And so he really helped introduce tricking and extreme martial arts to the competitive martial arts scene. And he was one of the pioneers of tricking in general, which now has its own, like, subculture, right? And so he came out with this curriculum in the early 2000s, and he called it XMA, Extreme Martial Arts. He sold it to schools, and, you know, this is early 2000s, so it was, like, DVDs were, like, all the rage, right? So it was, like, this literal binder of DVDs that the school had. Uh, And my instructor and his wife learned how to do sport karate from the XMA DVDs. Uh, and bow wasn't even part of our curriculum. I had learned chucks. I learned commas. I learned esprima, uh, I even learned a little bit of sword. Like I did everything else and bow just wasn't part of what we did. But then when they purchased the XMA program, bow was a part of that. And literally one day I had been working on a comma form and I was going to go compete with that. And uh, my instructor's wife called me over to the side and she was like, hey, you're going to learn bow today. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's do it. And uh, I picked up Bo and, and fell in love with it, and then probably competed with it for the first time, maybe six months or so after that. I had quite a bit of training leading up to jumping into that first tournament. Um, but yeah, so that, that kind of came out of nowhere, and I just fell in love with it. So to the, to the question of, do you need a traditional foundation in any art in order to start sport karate? Not technically, technically you could use online resources and learn sport karate and, and get the techniques right and be good at it, but I would certainly not recommend it. I would always recommend you need that traditional train first because at the end of the day, all of the naysayers on the internet who get on YouTube and comment like, this isn't martial arts, what are you gonna do when I pull out a gun, right? Like all of those comments. But if you just learn sport karate, they have a point because if you only know sport karate, you don't know how to do gun defense. You don't know how to get somebody's hands off because that's not what sport karate teaches, whether you're a forms and weapons competitor or you're a point fighter. You know, the the, the technique set is completely different. So I would always recommend learn traditional martial arts first, number one, because that's gonna give you that self-defense foundation. That really is the whole reason that martial arts exists, right? Martial arts its a war fighting thing, right? So being able to defend yourself and be effective in combat is an important part of what we do. That comes from the traditional arts. But once you have that foundation, you can build up from that. And then you can test your skills, test your coordination, test your precision, test your speed, test your technique. Go and test all those things with sport karate because really that's what sport karate is all about. It is technique development. Whether you're using it to see how fast you can strike the opponent in point fighting or you're using it to see how great of a display you can put on in forms of weapons, you're trying to master the technique of what you do. And that's where the traditional martial arts can evolve into sport karate. And I definitely think that anybody that comes from a traditional background, because I've seen competitors that only learn sport karate and go out there and compete, the competitors that have a true traditional background, Taekwondo, karate, or otherwise, They always have better sport karate fundamentals when it comes to chop punches and shifting front stances and moving the weapon. Um, They're just more natural about it because they have that foundational understanding. So is it possible to do sport karate without traditional training? Sure, but you shouldn't do it.
0: Uh, fans of the podcast know I love Keith Cook, Master Hirabashi. He's been on the show five times, and when, when I first had him on here, I was always drawn into wushu and the arts and all that stuff. And then we talk a lot of time every episode talk about sports karate and the basically what you said—you need a basis before you can jump in there if you want to be if you want to take the martial arts seriously. And I love what he, he would talk about a lot of times with the weapons in your hand for you the bow staff—it's an extension of your arms and your hands and the movement and the way you move and. When I when I heard that, I went back and watched some of this old stuff, and then in turn for researching this podcast, watching your videos and stuff, they're all over. And it's crazy where it's like how it, how true that is. Like the the thing in your hand is just an extension, and the control and how how much you control it and move it. It's just it's so fascinating that people like yourself or Keith or all these other great weapons masters, Karen Shepard, uh, they could do all this crazy stuff, and it's it's just your hands and here you are becoming trying to become a surgeon using your hands again and it's just like it's crazy how all these tools in your hands become like the extension of what you're trying to do
1: right and that's one of the first things that i was taught as a weapons practitioner like literally my first instructor would tell me mastery is when the weapon becomes an extension of your body that is a direct quote from my first instructor back in small town Paducah, kentucky um and so like that was always part of my thought process. And that is what I always tried to achieve as a competitor is that when I put together a form, I wanted to show that I was in complete, complete control of the weapon at all times. Whether the bow was 15 feet in the air because I was throwing up and spinning three times, I wanted to catch it and make it look easy to show that level of control, right? And it's something, I, it's something I tell students about all the time is, you know, you've mastered a technique when other people tell you that you make it look easy. Because making something look easy shows that you're in control the entire time. Back when when I first started getting good at sport karate and traveling the circuit, um, the 720 with a bow, so throwing the bow up and spinning around twice and catching it. That was like the biggest bow move that you could do. And we're talking like 2009. But the problem that I saw with it was, as a 10 year old, was that no one was doing it clean. Like people would throw their bows super high in the air and then they'd stumble around spinning twice and then it would, it would look really effortful to catch it. And in my mind, in the way that I had been trained up for everything to be about controlling the weapon as an extension of your body, I was like, well, that doesn't look like an extension of anybody's body. That you know, It, it doesn't look clean. And so when I kind of innovated my first, what people would call a Jackson Rudolph style bow form, and I brought that out for the 2010 season, which is really what turned my career around. One of the staple tricks in that form was a 720 that people had been doing for the last three or four seasons on the circuit, but I did it at a much lower elevation. So I would throw the bow to where it kind of just barely went above my head, Other people were throwing 20, 25 feet in the air because we compete in ballroom, so it's easy to do that. So I kept mine much closer to me, two tight spins, and then I would catch and I would turn immediately and bring the bow to my hip in like a chamber position ready to strike again. And I think that just that, it doesn't get as much love now because there's other elements of my forms that people pay attention to, like different tricks I made up and that type of thing. But really. If you ask me, one of the first things that put me on the map and helped me be a successful competitor, it was changing the way that release techniques are caught to where it's not just throw it up and catch it because everybody thinks it's cool, but throw it up and catch it in a position that you are ready to engage again. Because if you're going to escape the martial arts to do a performance trick, then when you catch that trick and move on to the next thing, you better be ready to jump right back into the martial arts and be throwing... Practical,
0: foundational, traditional techniques. As a kid, like obviously, the, the first time I came in contact with the idea of what the bow staff was—teenage mutant ninja turtles, Splinter—they would do all this stuff, and it's like I guess the question is, in terms of recruiting or getting kids or anyone in general interested in the sport of bow staff, outside of the digital movies or shows and stuff like that. What more can be done to bring awareness to sports karate from a pop culture standpoint? Is it just more movies and TV shows incorporating it, or is this more of a, like, how do we, how do you get out there doing these podcasts obviously helps the the creation of your flow system, which I want you to talk about. Uh, But what more can be done to get the idea of sports karate out there to the masses besides the people that when they do watch the first time on ESPN two early in the morning, and they're, I'm blown away. Like I, when I first watched this back, this is probably, God, nine, 10 years ago. I, anytime it's on, I re-watch, I watch reruns. I go down rabbit holes on YouTube. I love the idea of these, what you guys and girls do with this stuff. And it's like, how do we expand upon that and make sure more people just, maybe they might not want to do it, but just appreciate what these men and women are doing.
1: Absolutely. I think it does start with pop culture. And I think that a lot of it is hidden. Whereas back in like the 80s and 90s, when karate movies were all the rage, right, obviously there were things like the Ninja Turtles, uh, the Karate Kid, right? And then all of like the foreign martial arts movies that came out, you know, back in, in that century, it was very direct, like, this is martial arts, this is what the movie is all about, so let's go try this. Whereas now a lot of the the top sport karate competitors, they go on into the stunt industry. That's kind of the, the most common next career for sport karate competitors. And it's hidden because they're doing the Star Wars stunts and they're doing the Marvel and DC superhero stunts. And a lot of it, bow winds up in there right like you look at ray and star wars and she's using a bow that's what she's doing you look at they still need to make a gambit movie which hopefully they call me when they make that happen but like gambit that's like the perfect bow superhero right and then there's always like little scenes where you know somebody picks up a staff i think there was one in batman superman with like the, uh, the kryptonite staff or whatever right so it gets in there but the connection isn't so easy because you don't know that that's a sport karate person that's coming in and doing the stuff work it's just batman you know what i mean and so it's it's not as easy for the audience to recognize where it came from and so how do we get it out there more in this era i think social media is a massive tool Uh, obviously like things go viral and New sports get new exposure all the time. Uh, but even more than that, I feel like it's also going to take a, a change in the direction of the powers that be in the sport karate space. All of the, the league owners and tournament promoters for so long, I feel like all of the efforts have been focused on get more competitors into the tournaments. And so all of the marketing has been to the martial arts schools to get more kids competing in the tournaments but you're limiting your market size if you're only trying to bring people in to compete. The market is so much larger, if instead of focusing on getting more competitors, focus on getting more spectators to watch the people who are the best of the best, because spectators are always gonna give you exponentially more money than the competitors will, right? Right. And so shift those marketing efforts, don't focus on, hey, you school owners, bring your kids to these tournaments, there absolutely still needs to be some of that, but the majority of the marketing effort should be, hey, we've got the, the 10 best competitors in the world, the top two women, the top two men, the top three point fighters, whatever it may be, and they're going to be performing for two hours competing against each other in this show. Why don't you guys come check it out? Tune into this stream on Black Belt Magazine or wherever it may be, you know, at 9 p.m. or whatever. Like, doing that type of, of marketing and focusing on the spectator and growing the viewership, to me, that's the way we get it to grow. And the more fans of the sport that you get, that's where your inspiration comes in. The more fans of the sport there are, the more kids are going to be coming into martial arts schools and then they'll make their way through the pipeline and wind up being competitors at the events as well.
0: Growing up, again, growing up, I remember walking down the grocery store aisles and seeing, like, the Black Belt magazines, like Richard Norton or, like, Bruce Lee or Chuck Norris or uh, Gene LaBelle, uh, rest in peace, uh, recently. Um, So for when you come into, when I sell that stuff, I'd just be drawn into a person with a weapon or doing a martial arts dance or a karate chop. I, I miss seeing that stuff. I miss seeing the physical print and the the ads you'd see on late night television of these competitions happening. And it's like, where do we, how do people, again, maybe you've kind of already answered this, but the martial arts in general, I'm hoping that after the last couple of years with people like researching and finding a new love or trying to pass time, fell in love with a martial art or something where it can kind of go back to where it was like, again, like all the they do those tournaments on like in California, the, the beaches and all these open tournaments where it's like, people are just promoting it. It's, it's, I had a Matt mask on the show a couple of months ago. He's a world famous arm wrestler and the same type of thing where it's like everyone knows those guys from, espn2 back in the day rob bath john brinsdick all these people used to watch the pete webbers and bowling uh jeanette lee and, and uh pool cues and stuff and but those it's like that that aura loss it's like trying to promote a sport that again but people might not understand but it's just a spectacle of getting people in a room watching people at the best of what they do compete it's like I I wish I could go down those shopping aisles and still see those magazines as opposed to 14 magazines on how to make a a flower bouquet, which is cool, but I don't need to know how to make blueberry scones for Sixth Street magazines. Like I, I don't need to.
1: Right. And that's one thing that I love. So I worked with Black Belt Magazine directly in their office for a year. So a lot of people actually don't know this because it was kind of that weird time warp, like right after the COVID shutdown, but like not everybody was comfortable being out in the world yet still. Um, And so during that time, so I graduated from Stanford in the spring of 2020. And then the COVID shutdown was kind of around there. And then as soon as the COVID shutdown ended, um, a lot of people don't know this either. It takes a full calendar year to apply to medical school. It's not like you just fill out your application and send it in and see what happens. It is a whole process. Like there's an initial application you send that in, and then some months go by, and then you secondary applications. And you need to have your secondary applications all typed up ahead of time so that when you get the offer for the secondary, you can submit right away so you're one of the first people they see. And then you do interviews and then you can maybe tour the campus. It is a whole year long ordeal. And so I was going to be doing that for a year. Didn't have anything else to do. And I've been working very closely with Century Martial Arts since I was like 15 years old and we started the Signature Series Weapons. And so Century caught wind that I was going to be basically available for a year while I was just sending in applications and writing essays. Um, and they said, hey, do you want to move to Oklahoma City and, and work with us for a year, basically as a consultant? Um, and I said, absolutely, sign me up. And so I moved to Oklahoma City, really expecting to be doing weapons work, you know, like consulting on the quality of weapons and doing all that. And uh, the first week that I moved in there, and I was getting settled in my office and everything. And they were like, so we acquired Black Belt Magazine. And uh, we need some help with it right? Because they had they had a few of the original employees from Black Belt Magazine uh, before it had been sold this century. Uh, Bob Young, who's still the editor in chief of the magazine, and then uh, Patrick Sternkopf, who stays super behind the scenes, but Black Belt would not continue to exist if it was not for Patrick Sternkopf. So I'm going to give him a huge shout out because the work that he does is incredible. Uh, it, literally, like all the behind the scenes stuff, the social media marketing, all of that, Patrick does a great job with that. But anyway, um, so those were some of the guys like from the original black belt company and patrick actually moved to oklahoma city and patrick was still kind of just getting settled as i I was coming in um and i said absolutely like and i didn't realize this until i moved into my office because they they did a treat for me and if you go back and you watch some of the old episodes of my podcast when i was still living in oklahoma i filmed those from my office and there's all these like binders in the back. And it is the actual complete archives of every issue of Black Belt Magazine Crazy. and Karate Illustrated. Black Belt Magazine owned Karate Illustrated, which I never knew.
0: Never knew that. Karate yeah.
1: Illustrated, of course, is what had all of those sport karate rankings back in the day. I found a, a retirement article about John Valera from 99. <laughs> like so much stuff. And I never knew that was part of the Black Belt family tree. Um, So anyway, so I was like, karate, like you guys were karate illustrated. This is crazy. And so one of my first initiatives in trying to figure out like we need to increase the, the online presence, we want to get the website more views, we want to get our social media presence up. And so being a sport karate guy, my first thing was like, well, hey, let's you guys have this huge following from everybody that loved karate illustrated, which no longer exists. Let's bring some of that back. And so that's when I got with kind of our internal team there. We brought out the Black Belt magazines for karate rankings, which are still active to this day, which is basically an homage to the Karate Illustrated rankings back in the day. Uh, And so we really started heavy on promoting sport karate again, and it's been really effective. Um, and so now, like, if you go into a uh, Barnes & Noble and you see an issue of Black Belt Magazine, there's going to be sport karate featured throughout, and they are starting to feature athletes like you like they used to back in the day, back when you would see Richard Brandon on the cover of Black Belt Magazine or whatever. You can see that again now if you, you know, go into Barnes & Noble or whatever. So um, I really, really love all of the efforts that Black Belt Magazine has been doing to bring those athletes to the forefront once again. Um, And now continuing that effort, because I still work for Black Belt remotely, uh, but really a lot of the people spearheading the efforts. Uh, My wife Gabrielle now works for them. She basically does like all of the posts on social media. Uh, so, if you don't like the way something's worded, you can blame her for it. Um, and then also Cody McCart. Uh, Cody McCart's been doing a lot of the behind the scenes social media stuff and all the analytics. So, I got to give a shout out to those people as well for really helping continue that growth of Black Belt and try to get it back to exactly your point where it was, where these karate athletes are up on this pedestal like other professional
0: athletes. I do want to say, and it's funny you said that because before you mentioned your wife working for them, the social media since the start of the pandemic for Black Belt Magazine has been so awesome with, uh, now I know uh, Sifu Horender Singh launched his podcast for them, um, but like just the post, and the engagement and getting people interested in asking questions and having fun with it, and it's one of those things where Social media is here to stay. We just have to learn how to play in that sandbox. And it's really cool when people take what that that idea of Black Belt Magazine, and what it means to so many people and generations to now incorporate that in today's life and how we live our lives on the phone and computer and stuff. And it, it's just really cool. Again, it's one of those things where it's like before you'd be like, you'd see a post back in 2017 was like three likes and no follow-up like who's okay tell me about why we celebrate this guy's birthday why should i care if i'm not a fan and so now it's the engagement and people and i can tag my friends and stuff because we watch this guy's movies or we we can have inside jokes it, it is a really cool how social media is going to actually help maybe lead the forefront and bringing this stuff back to the the populace
1: absolutely and that's been a really cool tool uh to watch some of those discussions because that was something like we started the morning questions when i was in like my first two weeks of working for them uh, and i don't remember whose idea it was i want to say it was patrick's idea so shout out to patrick for that but literally it was as simple as by the way jackson when you come into work every morning can you just like write a question and throw it up there like okay and so literally like i started kind of safe with like what's your favorite martial art, right? And then like, as, as things went, we were able to get a little bit more creative and be like, hey, Superfoot Wallace versus Benny the Jet, who you got, right? Uh, and so being able to like have those discussions and obviously like while I'm doing other work, like seeing that Facebook tab go off and then look at all the people debating and everything. It, it has been really special to see people take a vested interest in Black Belt Magazine again because you're exactly right. When I first started working there, you know, a post would be thrown up and the, the editing would be meh. And, you know, you'd be like, and eh, I got like five likes, right? Um, so the, the growth that we've seen there is crazy. I think when when I finished working there on site. I think we got up to a monthly reach that was just under a million, but now like I, I still look at the stats every now and then and they're averaging like over 10 mil a month and everything. It's really cool to see that growth.
0: A question I've always had, you're the first guest I've had on here that's actually worked with the Paul Mitchell team. And the How did Paul Mitchell get into the popular how did he get recruiting and building these teams because I've, I've seen the name a bunch and thank god you're here to talk about this because i could never really get an answer when it comes to research because when i first started i'm just like how did the hairstylist guy get involved with martial arts and like obviously i start do a little bit of research but again how does someone like that in the importance of someone like that that helps push the sports karate name out there
1: this is one of my all-time favorite sport karate stories. Uh, so, blah. If, if you tune into this show, like, just understand, I'm a massive sport karate nerd. So I, I could go off about stuff like this forever. Um, and ever since day one of being a sport karate competitor, I wanted to wear Paul Mitchell. My, my very first sport karate tournament, I saw paul mitchell members on stage competing and winning and decided that's the team that i want to be on i didn't know anything about it right Uh, little did i know that they've got the the longest tenured you know sponsorship in the history of the sport right Uh, so the way that it all started steve babcock who's one of the co-founders of the team one of my dear friends uh he was a groomsman at my wedding and uh he lives up in narragansett rhode island uh and he was like a semi-pro kickboxer as well as a point fighter from time to time in in his youth. And uh, when he was living in Los Angeles, he lived in this apartment complex and he had this garage that he would train in and he would leave the garage door open. This is California, it's hot. And he would literally work the heavy bag in the mornings. It just so happens that in the penthouse of that complex or whatever happened to live John Paul DeJoria, And so John Paul DeJoria, one of the co-founders of John Paul Mitchell Systems, obviously, uh, he would stroll down that sidewalk every morning. You'd see Steve working out and, you know, they would strike up conversation and John Paul always thought it was cool the work. That Steve was doing. Um, and, you know, Steve was just a, a semi pro kickboxer trying to get by. And so uh, he would often do like little jobs and everything for John Paul. Like uh, I think he did some handyman work and when he needed something like a carpet cleaning machine or whatever, you know, he'd be like, you know, Hey, John Paul, by the way, uh, i need like you know 200 bucks for this carpet cleaning machine you know i'll give it right back as soon as i return it get the deposit back like can i do that and john paul would give steve the money steve would always pay john paul back and that's a really crucial part of this story uh, and so steve and john paul became friends that kind of relationship john paul helped steve out from time to time uh, but every single time steve always paid john paul back and so fast forward a few years uh, 1987 And there's a Spider Brand team that has recently collapsed. So Spider Brand was a martial arts equipment company that would sponsor the team by making these like side deals with tournament promoters and saying like, hey, if you let our competitors compete for free, we'll give you five heavy bags for your school. And the reason the team fell apart is because there were a few tournaments in a row where (laughs) the heavy bags never showed up. And uh, so there was even one tournament where the tournament was like, uh, yeah, you, you guys, you don't have a hotel room. You don't, you don't have anything booked. Like, you can't be here. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so the team fell apart. They had a team meeting. And they were looking around the table, and they were like, does anybody know somebody with money? Like, <laughs> we got to sponsor this team. And uh, Steve raised his hand and was like, yeah, I know a guy. And uh, so he called, John called DeJoria and explained the situation and said, you know, would Paul Mitchell be interested in sponsoring a what was then just a fighting team Would you guys want to sponsor a fighting team? And John Paul said, you know what? Let's do it. Uh, I'm going to write you a check right now and let's get this thing going. Um, And so it was literally the way that John Paul trusted Steve from all those interactions when Steve was just doing handyman jobs, that when Steve called and said, you know, hey, John Paul, can we make this happen? There was no hesitation from John Paul. He was on board. He loved the stuff that Steve did in the martial arts. Um, And now, like, in my career, I've seen John Paul DeJoria make it out to several sport karate events. And that's always super cool to see just like a casual billionaire at the karate tournament. You know what I mean? Um, but that is the origin story of Paul Mitchell. And again, was awesome. in 87. So 35 years later, uh, it's still going strong.
0: Is it difficult for you now with the announcing side? You're kind of on the other side of the curtain here for this. The, like, how do you suppress your competitive juices when it comes to that? And it's, it's one of those things because you are so relatively young. I would assume. I mean, age is just a number, right? But for someone to have what you've done and the world titles and the Hall of Fame, all the stuff you accomplished in the martial art, to be that young and to be you look at you, you'd be like, oh, he's probably injured. That's why he's an announcer. Well, no, he's accomplished everything he could do. Is it weird for you to kind of adjust, and kind of push that kind of competitive juices down into like the becoming a surgeon or other goals you have in life?
1: Mm-hmm. I think with, with the commentating, it's interesting because commentating is actually something that I always wanted to do. Um, I remember from watching like the first few us open broadcasts where I was like in the sport enough to know what was going on and to analyze it myself. Um, I noticed that there was never and again, this is coming from sport karate though there was never the amount of detail that I wanted, and I knew well, wait a minute, I can figure out what's going on because I do this. And if I'm somebody watching from home, there's no chance they know what's going on, right? <laughs> they, they, they might think it's cool, but they have no idea what technique is what or any of that, right? Um, and so that was one of my early inspirations when I was maybe 13, 14, like, I bet I could do that. Like, I, I would love to do that. And um, it just so happened that during the pandemic, I got my first opportunity to do it thanks to Jesse Ray, So Jesse Ray is the coach of Team Next Level. He runs Next Level Martial Arts Center up in New York. He's an absolute sport karate legend. He was a fighter back in the day. And he put together the virtual fight tour. And the whole purpose of the virtual fight tour was to do basically just these, like, it was initially Zoom meetings. They've upgraded to doing, like, pay-per-view streams now. But they would have top point fighters fly in and, you know, do COVID tests. And then they would have point fights hosted so that people could still enjoy point fighting. Um, And he got to a point where he wanted to do the uh, virtual forms tour. It was a special edition of this featuring forms and weapons competitors. And I'd been tuning into all the shows and doing Black Belt Magazine write ups on the fights. And so he said, hey, would you want to commentate the forms of weapons? And I said, absolutely. And so it was literally like in a Zoom meeting and there was maybe 150 people watching, nothing major. And uh, we did it. And I did the commentating for virtual forms tour. And then I was talking to Jesse after the fact, and I was like, hey, by the way, I, I can commentate some point fighting too. Because a lot of people don't realize this, because I was always a bow guy. Point fighting is one of my absolute favorite things that happens at a karate time. I am a huge fan of point fighting. I analyze it, I love it. Um, and so then I got into doing some commentating for the point fighting as well. Next thing you knew, there was a pro point event, which was a, another pay-per-view style point fighting event uh, that Josh Horwich put together out in Atlanta. So I got flown out to go and do that. And so after I do a few of these events, uh, all of a sudden people are like, hey, Jackson's pretty good at this. Let's try to get him at some of the tournaments. Um, And thanks to the efforts of Black Belt Magazine and sportmartialarts.com, we started streaming more tournaments. I got the move with Mallory Woods as my primary broadcast uh, partner for a lot of the sportmartialarts.com stuff. And then that ultimately led to the opportunity this year at the US Open, uh, where I got to commentate for ESPN. Uh, because I guess I kind of became the, the token sport karate commentator.
0: Right?
1: Um, but so it, it is interesting. You mentioned balancing that competitiveness. You know, for me, I don't really feel it when I'm up there. Like, obviously, deep down inside, when I'm watching my Paul Mitchell guys on stage, I want my Paul Mitchell guys to win. Obviously, I want my wife to win, right? And I, whenever she's on stage, I admit it on the broadcast. I'm like, yes, this is my wife. Like, I'm going to be a little biased to deal with it. Um, But with the Paul Mitchell guys, like, I don't really even feel that competitive side, because when I'm commentating, I get this like tunnel vision, and it's just focused on the techniques, because as a commentator, you're focused on trying to inform the viewer what's going on, provide the terminology, the names of the techniques, so that people remember it, right? So I always remember watching Olympic snowboarding, and then talking about the double big twist. I've got no idea what a double-knit twist is, but I know Sean White can do it. It's cool, right? And so I'm big on getting the terminology out there. And so you get this tunnel vision on just calling what you see and being honest about the performance. And that's one of the touchier points for me is when it's like, because we get kids in the finals. And so it's like, man, when it's a kid and there's something with their technique and you're like, the right thing to do is to explain to the audience, like this is an area that this competitor can improve but also trying to balance that and say it the right way so that when inevitably the kid and their family goes back and watches the broadcast, they don't feel like they were being bashed, but they understand that it's an area to improve. And that's one of the more delicate things to balance. So really in the booth, I I don't feel any of that competitiveness come out. Um, And actually when it comes to to medical school and the pursuit of being a surgeon in that part of my life, um, it's a good thing to be a little competitive in that environment.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: That is, that's what it is. Like to get into medical school, to rise to the top of your class, to get the best residency positions. It is a competition. And there's a lot of students who ignore that to, I guess, avoid the anxiety of that. Um, but I think that's one thing that makes me different as a medical student is that I embrace that side of it. Because I've been a competitor my whole life, you know what I mean? So anytime we're in the anatomy lab, you know, I'm always internally like, I can dissect better than that. You know, doing, doing that type of thing. Um, so I do think that the competitive juices, as they say, from uh, sport karate and, and that professional career, um, I definitely think it carries over in, into my other endeavors. And I think that's a good thing as long as you know when to control it. Right? Correct. That that's the key.
0: When it comes to like the bigger world stage, like say the Olympics, like what's the process or are there people behind the scenes have actively trying to get sports karate into the Olympics? Cause it's like for me not to knock down the ribbon routines or the javelin toss, but here we have a, a someone with a bow staff is twirling that javelin the whole time versus or doing the sigh or the the, the sword. And it's like how's that any different than the floor exercise with a ribbon? Like these athletes just exerting just as much calories, doing as much craziness with so it's like how do you kind of sell that to these committees that are like oh that's not a sport yet but we'll put this as a sport. Like It seems like sometimes I remember when there was like this big hoo-ha about how uh, well, we might have to take judo out or point karate or taekwondo out because no one watches, no one cares. Well, back to what you said, you're not putting the right people in there to appreciate the sport.
1: Right. With the Olympics, it's it's a weird subject. So there are people within the sport karate community who are making an active effort to get sport karate into the Olympics. Um, I believe that the IOC recognized kickboxing as at least a demonstration sport or something like that not long ago. And that's a credit to the World Association of Kickboxing Organizations, WACO, and Roy Baker, who's now the acting president of WACO. Um, And he's been doing a lot of great work over in Europe to get, I mean, there, there were International Olympic Committee members at the last Irish Open, watching the action and then seeing everything unfold so that they could kind of assess if it was gonna be a viable Olympic sport. And shortly after that is when we got to hear some of the news about kickboxing being a demonstration sport. And obviously if kickboxing's in, that could open up some things for point fighting. What's also weird is that point fighting is like a totally different sport from forms and weapons, obviously. So like, right. if you get one, do you get the other? That, that's kind of up in the air. Um, and so if we ever do get that big shot into the Olympics, I'm all for it because that's the exact exposure that the sport needs. But I've also been of the school of thought that sport karate, at least forms and weapons, the extreme stuff, doesn't feel like an Olympic sport. It feels like an X-game sport. And so oh, I don't market that anymore.
0: Right? interesting yeah Oh, so
1: it's an extreme sport right like if you want to do the traditional karate in the olympics that feels like an olympic sport market traditional karate to the olympics because they keep it, they keep it limited to the traditional arts judo taekwondo you talk to her Perez he'll tell you that the taekwondo they do now is not what taekwondo should be <laughs> but it's meant to be the, the traditional stuff right and that's what the olympics is because it's a traditional sporting promotion right whereas the x games is actively trying to embrace all of the ridiculous things that humans can do. And that embodies, you can make an argument, point fighting as well as the extreme side of forms of weapons competition. And so I think it's worthwhile at least asking some questions about, well, what does it take to get involved in the X Games? But I think whichever route you try to go, the number one thing that we need is units. Because right now, a competitor can tell you, yeah, if you're a forms of weapons competitor, NASCA is the best league in the world because they have all of the best athletes. But if you bring somebody from the IOC to a NASCAR tournament and they see three judges sitting slouched in a chair, wearing some jeans and a t-shirt holding up a scorecard, they're going to be like, are you sure this is legit? Like we can tell those athletes are talented, but something about this doesn't look right, right. Right. And because there's that lack of professionalism and the lack of units right? Like the fact that there's so many different acronyms all around. Like, yes, there is NASCA, and NASCA does have the best competition in North America, but WACO, the World Association of Hip-Hop Organizations, they have the best competition in Europe. And then you can make arguments about where's the point fighting better. Is the point fighting better in Europe, or is the point fighting better in North America? I think most would agree forms and weapons is, is, it's been around longer in America, so it's much more well-developed in America. So NASCA definitely has kind of the the stranglehold on forms and weapons competition. However, the involvement of all these different acronyms instead of the National Sport Karate Federation or whatever, just like one thing where it's like, this is the governing body of this. That's just like when the Olympics looks at any other sport, I forget what, I actually wrote a Black Belt Magazine article about this uh, with regards to curling, I believe it was. I was like, curling has one unified professional league If you want to see the best curlers in the United States, you go and you watch this. We don't have that in sport karate. And so having a unified place where the IOC or the X Games Committee can go and and see the sport presented in a truly professional manner and everybody in the sport gets behind it and is saying this is where the highest level of competition is, we really need that if we're going to make any kind of a pitch to any committee to get our sport featured.
0: How fun was it you to start your podcast? And like, If people want to watch it and check it out, like, where do, where do you want to direct them to go to? Spotify, iTunes, and stuff like that.
1: So I keep, I'm trying to grow the YouTube channel and I'm not a YouTuber. So right now the YouTube is just like an archive of all the episodes that have been done. But you can see everything there. So it's just the Jackson Rudolph podcast on YouTube. I highly need more subscribers there. So you guys definitely go check it out. Uh, but then we do the podcast live on Black Belt Magazine. Yeah. Uh, so if you just stay tuned to like my personal social media accounts, I always share it up on there whenever we're going to go live because of my med school schedule, it does tend to change a little bit week to week. Um, but we do live episodes of the podcast, live interviews. We play games on the show, talk shop about sport karate. Um, and that's what it is. It's almost exclusively a sport karate show. Um, and that's always live on the black belt magazine, Facebook. So my personal social media at Jackson Rudolph one for Instagram, that's where you can get a lot of the updates Check out the YouTube, the Jackson podcast, and then Black Belt Magazine. Facebook is what kind of officially hosts the show.
0: It's uh, this has been an opposite episode, Jackson. I love the fact that for a lot of people, accomplishing what you did in the martial arts would be one thing. I, I would be I, if I did what you did. I would drink Monster Energy drinks. I'm gonna sit on a beach. I am I'm gonna twirl broom handles the rest of my life. But for you now to put yourself in a position to serve others is your quest to become a surgeon and do all this unique stuff and helping others it's a testament i wish there's more people in the world like you that kind of had that idea that vision to just push push yourself even further than what you think you've already accomplished and again man thank you so much for jumping on here thank you for doing what you're doing
1: well thank you so much for the kind words that means the world to me and again going back to what i said at the top of the show do what you love like That is, you know, when when people tell me, like, I I can't believe you're you're going on and doing this, like, it's crazy how much you do, like, it's, I do what I love. And, uh, you know, I think think when you do things for the right reasons, then the world takes care of you, you know what I mean? And uh, so that's my message to everybody, follow your passions, always do what you love. Again, to quote my dad, love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. That's the motto I live by. And uh, again, thank you for
0: having me on the show. This has been awesome. Well, thank you, Jackson. Appreciate it. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the CHOPFIT. Over the course of the past year, the CHOPFIT has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself, a feeling that you should all feel about yourselves as well. If you use this code, SPEARCHOP10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SPEARCHOP10. For $10 off your chocolate order, it'll change your life. Thank you.
1: The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers,